you how to reignite the embers of a distant and lonely relationship into a blazing, emotionally intimate connection. I'm your host, Amber Dolson. I'm a psychologist, author, and speaker. A few of my favorite things are my husband, Graves, and my adorable little dog, Riggs. Now let's learn how to create a soul crush in love that lasts. Hit subscribe in your podcast app so that simply by listening, you can rekindle your relationship by pouring a little gas on your relationship ember. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be misconstrued for specific relationship advice. For advice for your specific relationship, seek a local couples therapist for relationship counseling or couples therapy. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Relationship Psych, the podcast. And today I'm so excited to debunk some myths, to give you some real education so that we can learn the truth about what narcissism actually is and what it isn't. So joining us today, I have Wendy Bahari, who has over 25 years of professional experience, advanced level certifications, and is the founder of the Cognitive Therapy Center of New Jersey and the Schema Therapy Institute of New Jersey, New York City, and D.C., She's been treating clients uh, and doing professional trainings and supervising psychotherapists for more than 20 years. She's the author of the internationally best-selling book, Disarming the Narcissist, which has been translated into over 15 languages. And so exciting, the third edition was just released on October 1st. So she has a specialty in treating narcissists and people who live and have to deal with um, narcissism. She's an author and expert on the subject of narcissism and is a contributing author to several chapters on schema therapy uh, for narcissism and professional readers. So today we're going to bust some myths on narcissism and we're going to learn the truth about what it really is. So welcome to the show, Wendy. Thank you, Amber. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So as, as I was just telling you before we hit record is I feel like all of a sudden I'll be scrolling on social media, reading an article, and I'm confronted with everybody everywhere has narcissism. And, and I know just from my professional experience, my personal life experience, and even the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, the prevalence rates of this is actually quite low, but it, it varies along a continuum. So I'm so excited to have you here with us to help us understand what it really is. But before we get into that, fill us in. This is a really interesting profession and field. What got you into the area of learning about narcissism? Yeah, thanks, Amber. And yeah, I love debunking the myths about narcissism and the idea that everyone is narcissistic until proven innocent these days, which has become, it's, it's really lovely to see that. I always love to see people learning and being able to differentiate and actually to free themselves from things that can cause such terrible self-blame and, um, self-disparaging, self-recriminating feelings. So I think wisdom is powerful, but we want to be clear about what is and what isn't when it comes to something so important and serious as narcissism. I did not choose to be an expert in narcissism. So to go to your question of how did I end up here, I found myself when dealing with this population in the early days of my career to be incredibly triggered. I mean, I saw myself going into states that were a little bit reminiscent of, of being a little child, you know, states of submission and I'm sorry, and uh, you're right, and agreeing and giving in to demands that were unrealistic. And there was a kind of meta-awareness. There's a part of me going, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, sort of watching this with great fascination, incredulous. As I saw myself, I'm not incredibly shy, but just sort of shrinking mm -hmm. into this role of being very self-sacrificing and subjugated and feeling overwhelmed. And I say as a little child, because, you know, growing up in the sixties and the days when, at least in my Catholic school experience, it was pretty scary and the authority figures could be quite torturous. And so you had to learn to be a good soldier. And I could feel myself almost as if being pulled under that spell again. And so that began kind of a, a curiosity about learning about this population and the effects on others who are offended and recognizing through lots of mistakes that I made with those reactions, um, recognizing what was needed. And so the model that I practice, which is schema therapy, 
um, working alongside Jeffrey Young, the founder of the model, we began to develop an approach for working with people with issues of narcissism that has become quite effective given the right elements being in place and so launched my career into becoming an expert in narcissism over 30 years. Wow. And I, I just relate a lot to that early experience of being around someone who maybe has some of these features or traits and it, they get, it's like you get this feeling of shrinking and being small. And I used to work in um, parenting capacity um, in the in child protection. And uh, I often saw ch- parents after their children had been removed from their care and often involved in the legal system. And I remember early on talking with some parents were lovely, fine to talk to, really eager, really fine to work with. And then very early in my con- career confronted with a, a couple parents that weren't like that mm-hmm. and feeling small, feeling like I was shrinking in. I, I tend to be a fairly direct person most of the time and suddenly couldn't find the words, suddenly stuttering, overwhelmed, wanting to just give in. And because I wasn't even really sure what they did sometimes, mm-hmm. and it just made me feel quite uncomfortable. And, and that was part of my early learning where I had to learn about this thing that was happening. And it was, it was a very interesting thing. And in your book, you describe, uh, you say this line that really was a helpful line to me. It says, um, so what do we call this personality type? The one that throws you off balance with curious paradoxes of character. And when I read that line, that was how I felt in those moments, just like very thrown off balance, all of a sudden unsure of myself. So I'm usually quite sure of myself, but in those moments, it was like, I couldn't find my footing. Mm, Exactly. Yeah. You feel wobbly. I mean, and there are these, there's contrasting issues. And when you're dealing with someone with narcissism, you are very often met by a person who can be incredibly charming. And at the same time, the minute you start to touch the tender nerve, they can become, you know, highly conflictual. They can become angry, entitled, enraged, critical, cynical, you know, sarcastic. And, and suddenly you've got this very confusing message that's mm-hmm. happening, not just in front of you, but it's being translated into something that is really disabling and destabilizing inside of us. Yeah, absolutely. So let's explore if we're going to start to use this word narcissism. I know in your book, you define different kinds of narcissism. Can you take us through uh, the narcissist, the spectrum of what we would call narcissism and and different ways of defining that? Yeah. Yeah. It's because it's such becoming such a well-worn term these days. And it's certainly not a pretty one, not one anyone wants to grab and, you know, attach to their signature. It's got a lot of pejorative effects associated with it, but I think the simplest way is to think of it as, first of all, it is a syndrome, if you will, or a personality type that happens along a spectrum. So you have varying degrees of intensity, varying degrees of traits. It shows up in many colors. And so it, you know, for those who are dealing with someone who is perhaps annoyingly show-offish, arrogant, gets very preoccupied with themselves, you might say, well, they're insufferable, but they're at the mild end of the spectrum and probably more redeemable with some help um, and can often do well with some help. Um, And I can talk later a little bit about what it takes to get them to get help. But when you get up higher on the moderate to severe end of the spectrum, you have greater degrees of Um, truly off-putting, sometimes abusive, um, definitely abusive at the high end of the spectrum, um, really destabilizing effects on the offended partner because the narcissist becomes more controlling and much more entitled, self-absorbed, demanding, critical, cynical, defensive, unempathic, unremorseful. Uh, I mean, they're obnoxious and they can be aggressive and abusive, as I mentioned as well. There are, in the research, what we're seeing now, more clearly is that you can have the the very, what we think of as overt types. And I write about this in my book and then the covert types. So the overt type is the more classic kind of narcissist you imagine who has these very grandiose feelings about themselves and they are uh, better than everybody else because, because, and they'll tell you all the reasons why and they're interrupting you constantly. And you may get flavors of that in the covert type, but it's covert. So there's more passive aggressive behavior, promises being made, not being kept. There's a lot of victimization, if you will. So the narcissists themselves 
gets very lodged in this position of their pain and suffering is the greatest pain and suffering, the biggest mm. pain. And so you couldn't possibly understand what I've been through, Amber, because my suffering is like no other. And you wouldn't understand that as a therapist, even though you work with people because you've never met anybody quite like me. So it's a, mm. they're not saying they are fabulous. They are saying they have the most extraordinary kind of suffering that mm. might be outspoken, that might be more inhibited, you get types that are highly dependent and feel entitled to be taken care of and you get mixed varieties. So there's, it's not a one size fits all, even though there are overlapping traits with the one common denominator often being this tremendous sense of entitlement mm -hmm. and a lot of self-absorbed activity. And I think that's helpful. And it's helpful to recognize that there's the continuum. So you have someone that you can feel like, oh, wow, you're insufferable. You really like attention, but maybe isn't at that farther end of the spectrum. So at the farther end of the spectrum, we have our overt uh, narcissist who, who's going to be many more of the characteristics you described. They can be more bullying. They can have a lack of empathy. They can need way more attention. They're grandiose. Whereas then we have people that are more covert, who it's more subtle. It's more they're the victim. And I think that's just helpful to understand some of the spectrum in different ways that we might see some traits in people. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, in your book, you write about the term healthy narcissism. Hmm, I which I think is a really interesting term. And even just think if people are using the word narcissism all over, may maybe we could take away from some of the negative connotations with this word, if we understand what could be good about it, in fact. Yeah, I know it's a, it's a weird kind of uh, maybe oxymoron or paradox or something to put healthy next to narcissism, but there's a few forms of healthy or, or maybe adaptive, right? What's adaptive about narcissism when you think of a baby is that it really is all about them and they are entitled to care and love and protection, support and guidance and everything that a little one needs in order to develop and be prepared to live in the world. Same is true in adolescence. They go through those, the kind of developmental imperatives of it's all about me and I'm right and I know what I'm doing. And, and it takes a loving, wise, patient, not perfect, but a good parent to be able to guide that ship and help with boundaries and the development of frustration tolerance and but it's natural and adaptive to be in a state of narcissism and when we go further into looking at adults who have a healthier form of narcissism we're talking about those who still have kind of self-absorbed energy but their mission or i like to think of them sometimes the narcissist with a heart of gold they'll push everybody out of the way, but it's usually in the spirit of doing something good for others. So even if they've got to kind of trample you a little bit, it's still with a mission to protect, to take care of, to rescue, to fix in terms of the greater good. It's not so much for them to shine in the spotlight, even though they may like the spotlight, it's for them to be able to achieve a greater good. So you get this combination of this self-absorbed energy and a little bit of pushiness as well, or a lot, but there's a, there's a heart of gold there. There's mm -hmm. a good intention attached to that. And I'm not talking about the narcissist who's just, you know, out to rescue you so they can look good. It's really for, with kind of a focus on taking care of a population in need or an at-risk population, you know, bringing mm -hmm. attention to a subject matter that's really important. So how, what do you think is then the differentiator between how would you know if someone's acting more in that healthy narcissism, they're trying to bring attention versus they're more covert or overt? What are the main differences that someone could be thinking about? A lot of it has to do with where their energy is focused, you know, what is their purpose? So I sometimes look at, um, you know, just people even in the celebrity world or people who are, you know, they're they're clearly monopolizing the camera and the microphone, and they might even be interrupting people who are talking with them, but it's because it's so important to them. And you can see in the outcome of this, that it's about delivering a message that's going to reach people's consciousness, raise awareness about poverty, raise awareness about discrimination, raise awareness about narcissism, whatever it might be, but to raise awareness. And so you can, you get that sense that it's not so much about them saying, look at me, I'm wonderful, you know, or look at me, I've suffered so much. They're not self-effacing. They're just pushing 
to send that message out there mm-hmm. um, because it's so important to, or they believe it to be so critically important. And they've got a lot of you know consensus around that. Whereas, you know, with covert narcissists and more classic narcissism, you get that feeling and that sense in your gut, as well as the obvious signs where, you know, this isn't for the greater good. This is still all about me, you mm-hmm. know, and they will remind you that you owe them and you mm-hmm. don't appreciate anything. And they will give you the list of all the wonderful things that they did and how dare you. And, and it's always coming back to them. It's always about them. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a good differentiator. And I think, you know, sometimes if, if I've tried to talk about the subject of narcissism and I talk about the good parts, people can be greatly offended if I'm saying, okay, well, hold on. Not, not everybody here has narcissistic personality or not over everybody here is an overt narcissist. There could be good features. And some people get greatly offended to talking about um, that, that it's not all bad because I want to make sure I'm differentiating here and clear when I'm asking her to talk about healthy side, it's to recognize there are different aspects because when it is overt and when it is the big and profound, there can be devastating impacts to being in that person's circle, devastating. And I think it's so important that we use the word properly, that we understand the implications and we're not falsely labeling people that uh, we don't like, or are a bit attention seeking, or maybe struggle a little bit with empathy because that's different than the overt narcissism that can be so destructive. And, and when it's really there, it is incredibly important. We understand, know how to uh, deal with recognize because it, it's a really big deal. Oh yeah, so. absolutely. And, and so when you think malignant narcissism, that term has now become somewhat popular too. toxic levels of narcissism, mm. another way of wording it. But I do think it's because there is such a, um, a a desire to differentiate what ends up in that area of more psychopathic narcissism, where there is intent to harm. There is even pleasure in harm. There is, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's very dangerous and very damaging and people do suffer. And for those types, there is not necessarily any real clear answer or any clear pathway to help or healing. Now, I don't mean the offended, the offended people can certainly heal and get help and find their way back to their voice and their soul. But Mm -hmm. for those types of narcissists, um, there's not a lot, not a whole lot of hope there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about there's gender differences in people who have narcissism. And I think, um, the diagnostic system manual says 50 to 75% of nurse people, with narcissistic personality disorder tend to be men. And I think in your work, you say about 75% tend to be men. Can you just correct me on those numbers and the gender differences that you see? Yeah, I don't think we know them for sure, but I do think that what gets reported more frequently are uh, comes from, you know, those who are dealing with narcissistic men. So you get a lot more reporting on nurse, the narcissist being a male. And I, think there's some sensibility to that when we think of the evolution of narcissism and how it gets constructed. It just makes a little bit of sense based on higher levels of competition, which are usually socialized in men, aggressiveness, impulsivity. These behaviors tend to be more commonplace. And so when you take certain temperaments, learned experiences, societal messages, cultural messages, and then the family environment, you put that together, when temperament meets environment and there's emphasis on performance, achievement, competition, not that little girls don't have those same burdens imposed upon them because they do. And we certainly have plenty of divas to, you know, counteract their male count, their male counterparts. But um, I do think the strongest emphasis we see is primarily on men. Mm. And in your book, you write a little bit about the different mantras or the different flavors, how, how it shows up in each gender. It's a little bit different. Could you tell us a little bit about the different kind of thoughts or beliefs that each gender might have that would be a little different? Yeah. And, you know, as I said, there's overlap. So we can see for both very similar presentations, but what's most likely to be the case is with male narcissists, you're more likely to see this very great touting of their performance, their achievement, their, their sexual conquests, their studsmanship, you know, Um, it's, it's pretty much centered there. Whereas with female narcissists, even in 2021, there's a lot, 
more emphasis on appearance and domestic prowess and their children and the children's performance. You do get more of that flavor of the suffering type. So with mm. women, women narcissists, you're more likely to hear the, you just can't believe how hard I have it. Mm. kind of message you know my suffering is the strongest and most extraordinary suffering out there whereas with male narcissists that's less so and mm. until their back is against the wall then you may get some of the blame game or a lot of the blame game in fact but it doesn't come across with that vulnerable feeling in as much as you'll find it with female narcissists mm. okay well that, that's helpful to know and helpful to recognize and understand like it looks different for different people it's not one uniform way across all yeah. people or across all genders mm -hmm. and so it's just i think important to recognize that it can take different you know like we have different ice cream flavors we have chocolate we have strawberry vanilla it's all ice cream but it's different and it, we have yeah. different flavors of the way it shows up or the way that we're thinking about it or the way it's demonstrated so i'm curious then you started to already talk a little bit about the different uh, temperaments. And you talked about some of the early life experiences that little boys go through that might make them more uh, inclined to generate some of these traits or ways of showing up in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about how come people might end up with uh, more narcissistic traits than others? Or what are some of the main features of childhood experiences that get us to, you know, even that overt narcissist? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, what we find in as we're kind of profiling this, if you will, and, and again, we're very open. You have to have a flexibility in considering that it's not, there may be some variations on the theme, but what we see overall in a profile of narcissism in the background, because we can't necessarily measure temperament um, of the child when you're sitting with a 45, 50 year old person in your treatment room, but you're making some you're having some hypotheses about that based on stories that you've heard or maybe contact you've had with family members that this may be someone who came into the universe with i i believe they come with a very sensitive temperament and an impulsive one and at times perhaps one that leans towards more aggressive uh, tendencies and then they are met by an environment where they have been the chosen selected child, the one who is either going to continue the legacy of the family that is very uh, well to do, you know, maintaining a certain status, maintaining a certain position in the family. This child has been chosen to carry on the legacy or they are the child who is going to sort of start the engine for the family. They will be the chosen one who will finally you know, bring the family, you know, out of the darkness, they will bring a spotlight, they will be the first one to achieve someone's living vicariously through this little child. Mm. And what happens is, there is an under emphasis on that thing we all need called unconditional love when we're very little, mm. and an over emphasis on performance and autonomy. So you are expected to be able to perform to figure it out to do well to be the best, the best, the best to be superior at your game, to not have needs, to not be emotional because that's weak, to be measured and scheduled and to not be spontaneous, which goes against like childhood makeup, mm -hmm. um, very hard, you know, for this child. So this child carries tremendous burdens mm -hmm. and the little gifts they get uh, are the reinforcement based on pride because they have achieved. Yeah, they tend to do what is expected of them to a point because there are some goodies attached to that. Um, but they're often harboring an awful lot of insecurity and doubt and shame, mm -hmm. um, resentments that can become so massive, you know, in their core. And so the irony for <laughs> everyone listening is often, really, this big, boastful, bragging individual, you're going to tell me that there's insecurity. And my answer is, oh, there's a whole big boatload of insecurity mm -hmm. underneath, which explains why they go so far as to constantly try to win your approval and constantly in this mode of competing, winning, getting, having what they want, feeling entitled. And there's also science now to support this. I mean, we don't know causality for sure, but we can see from certain imaging scans that Narcissists tend to have the lowest level of connectivity when it comes to self-concept and self-confidence, those regions mm. of the brain. So it's, it's interesting, it makes some sense to me. 
Mm -hmm. It is interesting. It makes sense. And, you know, we're not going to get into all these today, but in, in her book, she talks about the 18 maladaptive schemas and, you know, Wendy details very nicely and simply uh, our early childhood experiences, how we can go through frustrations or have unmet needs. And as a result of those unmet needs, we have ways of thinking, feeling, acting in the world that we believe are deeply true. And these are developed very, very early on. And one of the things that strikes me in, in listening to her book, and even as she's sharing now, is just talking about that little kiddo who's been told to be perfect, succeed, and, and basically not have any needs that his or her little emotional needs just weren't met. And no wonder they can't show up emotionally for others when they have zero experience with that for themselves. And no wonder they're fighting back, trying to be like, see me, hello, I'm here, you know, give me the attention because they, they've never learned. They've never had that experience. And they so deeply, deeply, deeply crave it, need it. It's, it's not a shock to me either. Once you start to understand some of those early, early origins. And so, you know, later we're going to talk about Wendy's book, but uh, if you really want to understand some of this early um, makeup that tends to, you know, show up in patterned ways. She does a really detailed job explaining it and, and helping understand what could have gone on for these little kiddos. Mm. Um, is that, there any, that's a beautiful summary, by the oh, way, you just did such a nice job of summarizing some very complex material. So thank you. <laughs> I was, you know, I was thinking about it and I was thinking, geez, do we even bring them up? But when you start to get into them, there's just so much there and your book, I think you have a chapter that nicely organizes the material, but it's just a really, it's a complicated topic that if you go into it, you don't really explain it well enough. It's really confusing. But when you start to go into it and you get it, you're like, wow, does this ever make sense? Yes. And on that note, Amber, I mean, because it's so important what you just said, this is not intended to have us all sitting around boo-hooing and feeling sorry for the narcissist. No. I mean, our goal as therapists and, and as, as humans who have rights in the world is to make sure that they are responsible and accountable for their actions that have impacted others in ways that are really hurtful and harmful mm -hmm. and debilitating. So this is not about feeling sorry for them. This is about understanding. And that's why I believe empathy is such an incredibly important element. We want, we need to get it because when we get it, when we make sense out of it, then we are able to emancipate our souls a little bit. We're not taking it personally. We can say, ah, I can see why he or she turned out to be this way. It mm -hmm. just makes sense. This isn't because I'm some crazy suspicious person or I'm just not something enough. You mm -hmm. know, you, you just get a better glimpse at understanding and appreciating how these different personality types get constructed on the basis of this combination of biology and experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love what you just said. It's not like, it's not about excusing it, forgiving it saying, Oh, yeah. poor you. But one of the things that helped my professional career really early on after getting destabilized and thrown off balance, working with some people that were overt narcissists is gosh, I was so confused. How do you respond? And then you start questioning yourself. You feel bad about yourself. You're like, did I do it wrong? Was I bad? Did I make a mistake? It was, and you're very confused. Right. And so when you can step back as a professional and go, okay, what happened to this person? Okay. This is how they show up. This is the pattern of behavior by understanding what's going on. And then looking at yourself, it's almost like you can get your footing again. Mm -hmm. And so I have to do this in a professional context, but in a personal context, it'd be just as important to say, okay, here's what's happening. I can see it. And because I can see it, I can now regain my footing and I can act differently. So it's not, I mean, sometimes we might want to be compassionate that's going to help us with how we interact, but it's really about understanding helps us get our footing. Sometimes that's kind of why we're going there. That's right. Yeah. So let's talk about, I know there are certain kinds of characteristics or qualities uh, in partners who may end up in relationships with uh, people who have stronger characteristics of narcissism. What characteristics or qualities uh, do you tend to see in people who partner with narcissists? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll start with this. I think no one is immune to getting captivated by a narcissist no. because they are so clever. And recently in some of my presentations on neurobiology and understanding a little bit more about how our brain detects things and people will say, how do you know, do you ever get it like a sense that you're with a narcissist? And I say, yeah, sometimes now, because I've had a lot of experience, but no one is immune to being attracted to them. No. And because our, our sense of smell is one of our strongest senses, like our canine pals, it, it's the thing that we don't sniff out 
so easily because narcissists know how to go odorless, as I like to say. Mm. They're very good at keeping so many of those traits beneath the surface until they don't feel like it anymore, you know, until they're done with perhaps winning you over or courting you or, you know, they're just very good at sort of figuring out how to bring you into the web. And I don't say that as if they're like sinister in the way, I mean, some are, you know, again, severe end of the spectrum, maybe a little bit more sinister, but your average narcissistic person is just very clever at getting what they want. And so anyone can get captured, but there are some types of people that are more likely to be targeted by a narcissist and more likely to find themselves kind of caught in the trap. And that is someone who has a higher degree of what we call in schema therapy, self-sacrifice schema, meaning that they're more likely to forfeit their own needs. They're more likely to give someone benefit of the doubt over and above their own even gut feelings or even mm. their own rights, they're more likely to subjugate their opinions, their ideas, their choices, their actions, their preferences, even their frustration. They will inhibit those emotions for fear of things like being abandoned or being mm. punished or being made a fool of or being wrong. And so when you have that more other directed quality in your personality, or you're a super empathic, compassionate person, who's always giving everybody an off the hook, um, a greater tendency to be more tolerant and to suffer, you know, as a result, unfortunately, because narcissists are really good at targeting these people. And these types of people are, you know, in all of their kindness and goodness and generosity, they forfeit their rights. Mm -hmm. And so the give get ratio is often very out of balance. Mm -hmm. And I think you raised some really good points. Like no one's really immune to it. And I know in my professional career, there's been times where I didn't, I didn't like they presented odorless and it wasn't until somewhere along our work together where uh, maybe they perceived I misstepped or didn't like something I was presenting, or maybe in couples therapy, if they perceived I took their partner's side that then yes. uh, I start to be like, Oh, something is happening here. And I've worked with many clients uh, just, just because like we've talked about more men tend to um, it just tends to tend tends to be more men with narcissism. So over time with clients, I've seen uh, in my couples that all of a sudden you're working with someone and, and the, the female partner will often say, it didn't start out like this. They were charming and charismatic and a, a lovely, wonderful partner at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then everything changed. Yeah. And so, and they can be so confused about how did it start out so good? Mm. And now it is so bad. And these are, you know, very well-educated doctors, lawyers, yes. um, people who end up in relationships with narcissism very, and they're like, how did, how did I get here? Mm -hmm. And so we have to do a lot of work to understand, like, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you, you didn't make a choice to be here. You loved someone and, you know, they, they showed you a wonderful time at the beginning. Yes. Until yeah. it wasn't wonderful anymore. And yeah. then often we're trying to work with, okay, what do you want to do now? And is there ways to get through this relationship. And sometimes there, there's not, and sometimes it's, well, how do you leave? And so there's different conversations once we're in that position, but I, I just encourage people to remember most of the time it didn't start out ugly. Sometimes it starts out quite beautiful. And you, but you said something so important about the way partners can find themselves, offended partners can find themselves questioning their own intelligence or, or their own ability to trust themselves. You know, how did I miss this? You know, I'm a smart person. I'm, I'm an attorney. I'm an accountant. I'm a whatever. How did I miss this? Mm -hmm. I've always considered myself to be a keen observer of human behavior. And so there's this self-doubt, you know, how could I have tolerated this? What's wrong with me? And so in comes the inner critic for those who have, and I treat a lot of people who have dealt with the hypersexuality of narcissism, which is another common problem, um, and the serial cheating. Be it, you know, compulsive engagement in pornography, sex workers, affairs, um, and the betrayal trauma that happens as a result of that. You probably see this too in your work with couples. It's, you know, the whole restoration of trust when you're dealing with narcissism. One of the most discerning factors when it's a narcissist versus a non-narcissist and you're dealing with trust and, and loyalty issues is that big fat issue of entitlement because narcissists are so good at getting a partner to believe, A, it's your fault, it didn't happen, you're crazy and paranoid, you're insecure and suspicious, 
And in once they can no longer hide the evidence, it's, well, I'm entitled to it. I'm justified. You're just not interesting anymore. You don't pay attention mm-hmm. to me. You're not sexy enough. It's something. Mm-hmm. And partners who, you know, over time and healing and clearing the fog will look with such regret and confusion. Like, how did I miss it? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's another very heartbreaking uh, experience in the process of healing, but mm-hmm. an important one. And so we all have to sort of take stock of that inner critic and find ways to turn the mute button on because um, again, the narcissist is, this is a pattern, the pattern that is to be anticipated, not in all of them, but in many of them that need to take that detoured route to some kind of hyperstimulation, some violation or breach of agreement that they feel entitled to breach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so let's imagine, Wendy, we get to a point where, you know, there's someone that wants to work on the relationship. They've realized at this point, they're like, okay, yes, my partner seems to have all these traits. I'm pretty sure they're a narcissist. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of feeling like I'm wrong or I'm bad, or I'm, I'm tired of feeling like things are my fault or they're entitled to it. Where can the healing in that relationship begin to start? Or is it possible? Yeah. There's the golden question. It, it is possible. I will say this. It is possible depending on, you know, first of all, how severe is the level of narcissism? Um, how much leverage? This is really a key issue. How much leverage do you have? So the first thing I ask many people who consult with me is, are there any meaningful consequences? Consequences that would mean enough that your narcissistic partner does not want to either a lose you lose contact with all that you bring to the table like family and friends does not want to lose their job in some cases it's legal issues like uh, losing their driver's license is there something that would be meaningful enough that if they knew they were going to have to face this consequence they would rather go to therapy than have to face the consequence. And so it's not just pointing a finger and issuing a threat. You have to be very prepared to execute. Mm -hmm. And so I coach a lot of people to authentically be able to present things like, I'd like this to work for us. I'd like us to grow all together. I'm sad that it feels to me that inevitably we will be on separate paths and inevitably this relationship will come apart. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not willing to get help, or if you are great, if you're not, then I don't see a future for us, but I really need you to get help at mm. this point. We cannot fix this ourselves. Well, we should try. No, no, we need professional intervention. And I think without that, it's just a sure path to the end of us, mm-hmm. which makes me sad if it does. I mean, you, you want to be very real and you want to speak from, again, a very sturdy solid platform like this in this voice it's not raging it's not reactive because that's just dancing in the way the narcissist is very used to you want to come from a voice that's very clear now they may be eye rolling and door slamming and harumphing in the background and you need to go deaf and sort of shut your senses so that you can articulate your voice put your vulnerable self in a little safe place over here in your imagination and be able to assert What's absolutely so? Draw that line in the sand. So leverage, right? Where are they on the spectrum? And first of all, if you're dealing with someone who's psychopathic, probably not worth the energy. If, again, they're somewhere in that moderate area, um, mild area, look for your leverage. Do you have any? Um, Assert your leverage. Look for a therapist who has some experience working with narcissism because it can get missed and it does almost all the time, if it's not someone who really understands narcissism. Make sure the therapist is willing to provide you with some idea of their approach and treatment. Is this an evidence-based treatment? Does this treatment, was this treatment designed to work with these types of personality disorders? Really important. And you're entitled as a consumer to have that information. Mm Yeah. Okay. So I think what you said there is really important. There's a certain along the spectrum, there's a certain element of people where they're likely to not change. Right. And then if they're more mild or moderate, your chances are greater, but you need to think about what that leverage would be. Yes. Okay. 
And so let's imagine then you're kind of in the range or maybe you're starting to think about treatment or maybe you just want to start standing up for yourself. You just want to start talking to the narcissist in your life a little bit different. What strategies can we begin to use? I mean, you're already talking about being centered, how you're communicating, um, but what else can we do? Yes, coming from your healthy adult self is number one, right? So you have to sort of check yourself, scan yourself, and literally, although this sounds a little crazy, but the imagination is a powerful resource. You use it to be able to tuck yourself, your vulnerable part of you, your reactive side of you away into kind of a safe place. And then you proceed from your healthy adult posture, right? Mm-hmm. Sit tall, head up. I have nothing to defend, right? Mm. You're, you don't have to be roaring because roaring and anger is still masking the most authentic representation of your feelings, that clarity. If you want to, sh- if you really want to stop a narcissist in their tracks, approach them at this level, just mm-hmm. like this. It's very real and in many ways, very threatening because it's not engaged in the dance of conflict. I think there is a strategy that I like called empathic confrontation. And this is a strategy that we use in the treatment room, but it's also one that can be used by anyone in a relationship with anyone who's difficult, but specifically in terms of our subject today with narcissism, it can be very powerful. And that means just as it sounds, I get it, but right. I get it. There's the empathy. I understand that you were, always raised to believe that if you just did everything just right, perfect, got it right, scored the points, ticked the boxes, then you're entitled to say and do and scream and shout and have your way, whatever you please. I know that's not your fault. That's the way you were taught. Mm-hmm. But, but, and here comes the confrontation. Mm. That's not the way it works here. I, I'm not doing this anymore because it doesn't work that way in relationships. You may be able to get people to jump all over the place when you shout orders at them at work and they do what they do because they're fearful of the consequences. I don't think it gets you a whole lot of respect, but maybe it gets the job done. But that's not how it works in the world of intimate relationships. It's not okay. This doesn't work for me. Maybe here's another version, very common. I know it wasn't your intention to be hurtful because so often the narcissist isn't trying to hurt you. They're trying to protect their ego. They will hurt you. They will hurt you, but that's not the motivation. The motivation isn't let me see how I can hurt you. The motivation is I got to make sure I'm good and therefore you have to be wrong. So they'll do whatever they can to gaslight, try to convince you otherwise, distort your reality. So your response can be, look, I don't, I know it's not your intention to be hurtful. I know you're not trying to be a bully on purpose, but ouch, mm-hmm. it's not okay, mm-hmm. right? I'm not doing this dance. And my intention is not to be critical of you. So before you start with the, you, I don't appreciate anything and you do so much for the family, please know that that's not my, my intention is not to be unappreciative of the things you do. My intention is to state very clearly that I'm not going to be bullied. I'm done with that dance. And again, you Mm -hmm. have to mute your senses at that point, because you may get a barrage of Mm -hmm. not so nice responses, but what you're doing is you're dropping the little seeds in the soil Mm -hmm. a little bit at a time, and you're doing it repetitively. You have changed your choreography. You've changed your voice. You have changed your relating the way you're relating. And For some, this new vibration in the relationship can have an effect because the narcissist does start thinking, okay, there's something at stake here. Mm -hmm. I could lose something. Mm -hmm. And they may begin to pay attention. Yeah. And I I think what you said there is so powerful in in so many areas. It's the understanding. Like I I understand where you're coming from. I see that this happened to you. That's maybe where we, if we understand their experience, we can convey it with empathy. Like, gosh, what you've gone through is so hard in your life to get here, but But. we're no longer there. And now we are here and this is what I need from you now. And so we can, we can use that early experience to, to be compassionate and, and to be, to show some level of like, I get you, I see where you're coming from. And still like, this is my boundary. And I know setting those boundaries really early on can be really hard, especially if we set them for the first time, we get that barrage of behavior. We get the eye rolls and the door slams and the foot stomps. And we get all those behaviors that are really big. It'd be really hard. You set the boundary once you try being empathetic confrontation. It's so easier to 
just sometimes go back to self sacrificing or putting, you know, yeah. okay, we'll do whatever they want yeah. just so I don't have to go through this. Right. And I think as the, as the partner, sometimes it could be really important to just know that that's to be expected mm-hmm. that they're going to behave that way the first few times, at least, because they're not used to you standing up for yourself. This is new. Right. And family systems usually like to be the same. We like homeostasis. We don't like change. And, mm-hmm. and the job of the system is to always pull it back to the way it always was. And so this yeah. would be such a new big thing. So what words of uh, encouragement do you have for people that are really wanting to try this empathetic confrontation, but know what's going to be hard and challenging? I'd say manage your expectations and know this. You can never lose if you keep your sights set on listening to yourself. Mm-hmm. Right there is it's always a win when you are coming clearly and calmly and firmly from your most honest, real self, you know, mm-hmm. that you are stating from yourself in the, cause we all want to be heard. Now the narcissist, they will hear you. They may not give you the benefit of knowing they've heard you, but they will hear you so much clearer than when you are shouting, screaming, walking away, giving in. Um, but instead you say, no, I'm not going to do this right now because, you know, I understand that you're angry and I can see you've had a hard day and I know you're tired, but your escalation right now, the way you're coming across, you're raising your voice, not going to do that. I'm not doing that anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm done doing that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if I, I know this is probably something important you want to tell me, but can't hear it, not going to try to hear it under all that veneer. Um, so we can try again later, but no. And inside, it's a victory for you if you keep your sights set on, I will be my advocate. I will always have my voice. I will have my voice in the clearest, most meaningful way. No matter what the response is on the other side, I have told my truth. It's Mm -hmm. very empowering. Mm -hmm. And you feel that and you let that just kind of get soaked right into your most vulnerable self, this wonderful advocate speaking on your behalf. And then your actions have to follow. So it means like turn the other way and walk away, go read your book, go take a walk, go catch your breath, take some deep breaths, go scream into the woods. But you want to put that very clear voice out there and feel proud of it. Mm -hmm. Because it's a huge deal doing something different, asserting your needs, especially amongst big behaviors. It's so hard, so hard. Yes. Oh, and so let's imagine someone starts asserting their needs, they're they're feeling those wins. They feel just like, uh, like emboldened inside a little more alive and a little more secure and grounded. And they're like, wow, my partner isn't changing. They're not doing anything with my requests, but what should someone do with that kind of information? I think it's just a matter of time before you're either going to, if you're really in a you know, so many people are in a stuck situation where you have children that you're trying to protect. Mm-hmm. You're not so confident that divorce and shared custody is the answer with a narcissist who isn't very attentive to safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you may make your peace with it, but it's a peace that you make that is committed to taking care of yourself, putting more mm-hmm. energy into you. And if you are ready to exit, I mean, your readiness will become clearer. You'll start preparing. And I write in my third edition a lot about preparation for the exit Mm -hmm. for people who are dealing with narcissism. It's very different than preparing an exit with just anyone Mm -hmm. um, because there's just a whole lot more red flags that we have to pay attention to with narcissists and some of their, their vengeance and retaliation. But, you know, you get a clarity as you continue to hear your voice and feel yourself and recognize the the unbalanced unfairness of not being appreciated, of not being treated well, of not being respected. And the healthy adult, you may decide it's time to go, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. but it's different than saying I'm out of here, mm-hmm. you know, or I can't take this anymore. I mean, it's sometimes easier to be reactive, but it's something powerful about just being thoughtful, mm-hmm. you know, really coming from that very thoughtful, wise self that says, I don't choose you anymore. Mm-hmm. I choose me mm-hmm. and I choose a life that's fair and I've got a lot to give and a lot to share, but you know, it's gotta be with somebody who's reciprocal mm-hmm. and it's choice as opposed to just a reaction. Yeah. I like that. A choice as opposed to reaction. And I think a lot of my clients, they try 
you know, using their voice and asserting it. They're like, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Like, okay. Well, that's useful data. Yeah. And so now you get to think about what does that mean for you? Mm-hmm. And exactly. for different people, it will mean different things. But the biggest thing here is you're getting grounded in who you are, the vision of you, who you would like to be as an adult, mm-hmm. and then asking that person in your world to join you in this new path. And if they do, wonderful. And if they don't, you have you have data and choices about what you do with that. And only that that individual person can decide. Right. Right. Oh. Exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question and really well put. So Wendy, we've talked a little about the third book. I'm, I'm excited to read this, this more work here about the, the leaving, I think as a professional, as a person, I'm like, I want to read that. I definitely want to read that. So, uh, edition three, here I come, but if people want to learn more about your book, this specifically the third edition, um, I guess quickly, what are some of the updates and where can they find it? Well, I rewrote the whole third edition of the book. So um, there's lots of elaborations on the content, some new content. I've written three new chapters, which includes divorce, perilous narcissism and betrayal trauma, safety issues, as well as co-parenting with a narcissist and some effects on children. So it's a lot of new material. Go to my website, um, type in Wendy Beharry to find disarmingthenarcissist.com or type in disarmingthenarcissist and you'll find yourself on my website where there's a lot of stuff there. I've put a lot of resources on the site, podcasts, and as yours will be on my site too. And um, uh, articles, journals, blogs, books, resources, lots of goodies there as well as a way to buy the book. So Mm-hmm. Well, just thank you so much, Wendy. Uh, I appreciate it. I'll put a link to her website in the show notes, a link to the book in the show notes. Is there any other places you want people to find you or follow you or mainly just through your website? I think my website's probably the best place to, to find me. Perfect. Well, that's where we will, that's where we'll put the link to in the show notes. Then. And, and Wendy, just from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for your time to educate uh, the audience, me, the public for your work in the theory, the understanding, your contributions to schema therapy, um, I had no idea when I started taking schema therapy a couple of years ago that I would stumble across your case conceptualization of narcissism ah. and, and learn so much from just the way that you've helped professionals and, and just general people understand it. And I've grown tremendously as a clinician since learning about your work. And I can't thank you enough for your contributions to the field. So just thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate you tremendously. That's lovely. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Amber. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to Relationship Psych, the podcast put on by Ember Relationship Psychology. If you're looking for more free relationship help or advice that comes straight from the couple's therapy room, check out the free resources and the blog at www.emberrelationshippsychology.com.